You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. The surge of coronavirus cases in India is staggering in both its speed and size. At the beginning of April, the country began reporting 100,000-plus new cases a day. The COVID crisis in India is relentless and appears to be only worsening. Then 200,000, 300,000, so that by the end of last month... The country has become the first in the world to record more than 400,000 coronavirus infections. That's in just one day. The numbers are devastating the country's health system. Overwhelmed hospitals are in dire need of oxygen concentrators, COVID tests, and masks. After a the country's total deaths from COVID-19 is now over 200,000, behind only Brazil and the U.S. Although, as NPR has reported, that number is absolutely an undercount. In some areas, grave diggers are working literally around the clock to keep up with the staggering loss of human life. So for today's show, we talked to Lauren Freyer, NPR's international correspondent based in Mumbai, about the state of the COVID crisis there, how vaccinations are going, and what might be behind the country's surge. I'm Maddie Safaya, and this is Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. I've got Lauren Freyer, international correspondent based in Mumbai, India, with me. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Maddie. So weeks into this massive surge of new cases, I mean, how would you describe the situation there? I would describe it as a five-alarm health emergency, and the alarm just keeps Mm. on going. Like, it's been weeks of Mm. this. Hospitals are overwhelmed. People are dying in parking lots of hospitals waiting to get in. People are dying at Mm. home, unable to get an ambulance. I mean, imagine calling 911 and no one ever answers for weeks. India is seeing shortages of pretty much every tool a country needs to fight a pandemic. So hospital beds, hospital workers, because, you know, in some cases, half of them are sick, too. Medical oxygen, antiviral drugs, shortages of test kits. So, you know, 400,000 cases a day sounds like a staggering number. Scientists modeling this say it might actually be more like 5 million cases a day here. Wow. Crematoriums are working nonstop. Like, a public park in Delhi was turned into a mass cremation ground. And... I spoke to a public health official recently who's, you know, supposed to be working on malaria prevention. His job now is to count bodies all day long. And his biggest concern is finding enough firewood for all of these funeral pyres. Wow, Lauren. Okay. All right. So let's actually focus in on that oxygen shortage. It's a crucial treatment in a respiratory pandemic. And I know the shortage has been a huge deal. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so demand for medical oxygen is up 700%, maybe more in some areas. Um, India's oxygen plants, oxygen-generating plants, are mostly in the south and east of the country, and demand right now has been in the north. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you can't fly medical oxygen. It's too flammable. So it's got to go by road, rail, sea, freight. So we're talking 18-hour truck journeys, um, and sometimes half of the truck drivers are sick. The Indian Air Force has been airlifting empty tanker trucks back to the plants to cut the travel time in half. But you've got people dying possibly preventable deaths, even at the best-equipped urban hospitals, because medical oxygen is running out. 
And on local media, you're hearing stories like that of Sanchi Guptesh. Her mother is on a ventilator in a New Delhi hospital where the oxygen supply um, is running low. My mother is uh, very critical in the ICU. But what is happening with the government? Why don't we have oxygen? Why? Why is this happening? Mm. And she was like searching for an oxygen cylinder, like to haul into the hospital to try to save her mom. We're trying to find empty cylinders because we can still get those filled. We are in contact with NGOs, with everybody. We're using every kind of pressure, every kind, every kind of contact. We are desperate. Wow, Lauren. I mean, that is that is. She sounds extremely desperate. That is that is heartbreaking to listen to. Yeah, and it's even more heartbreaking because the world is sending India oxygen support right now. Oxygen concentrators for days piled up at Delhi's airport, mired in customs queues. The aid is now being dispatched out to some states, but, you know, in some cases it sat there for 10 days while people died like literally a mile from where it was piling up. I spoke also with Dr. Sumit Ray. He is a critical care doctor in Delhi. And his hospital came within 30 minutes of running out of oxygen late last month. And he told me about this, like, mad scramble to try to hook up patients two to a cylinder, triage who could possibly be saved. And he put in all these frantic calls to government officials. It's not that they were not trying to help, but they themselves didn't know how to go about it. The logistics of large enough tankers moving fast enough And also coordinating because the demand has gone up. So you have to coordinate much more about who gets how much. And that coordination just is not going very quickly. Hospitals used to be able to procure oxygen on their own. Now, since the pandemic, the government is overseeing it. And Dr. Ray needs to send his requests through the government for refills. And he's needing those refills Every single day. And so the requests pile up. It's just a lot of bureaucracy. Yeah. Wow. What a logistical nightmare. Okay, Lauren, let me ask you about something else, because, you know, we talk on the pod pretty regularly that vaccination is a big key to getting the pandemic under control. I mean, tell me about India's vaccination progress. I know the country recently expanded vaccine eligibility. So everybody over 18 is eligible, right? Eligible in theory. Yes, that happened last Saturday, May 1st. But it felt like a PR stunt because the government didn't have the stocks to do it. So people have appointments. They go to a clinic to get their vaccine and they find a sign on the door that says, sorry, no more vaccines here. I mean, I had a text message canceling my appointment. And that's the same for everyone I know has had their appointments canceled. You've got to make appointments for vaccinations on this notoriously buggy government app. Like, I can't imagine how it is for folks without smartphones, how they will navigate this. And that's hundreds of millions of people in India. So as a result of this, vaccinations have plummeted. Around 160 million shots have been administered. But that's nothing in a country of almost 1.4 billion people. A little over 2% of the population here have had two shots. Okay, so I know that India is home to the world's biggest vaccine producer, the Serum Institute of India. I mean, you've done a story on them. We featured it on the pod. They're a big manufacturer of AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine. I mean, what, what's going on with that? What's the situation there? Yeah, it was a it was a real point of pride for India, the world's biggest vaccine maker. And now it's turned into a huge embarrassment. India was exporting vaccines made by the Serum Institute. Now it's importing vaccines, like including Russia's Sputnik vaccine, mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. Serum hasn't been able to provide enough for this country. And Serum's CEO has actually fled to London. Oh, wow. He says he faced threats in India from VIPs who were angry that they couldn't get their vaccines. And so the Serum Institute is now 
mired in these squabbles with the Indian government about whose fault this shortage is. Um, Serum had export agreements. The Indian government claimed some of the supplies for Indians. AstraZeneca couldn't follow through on the deals that it signed. Wow. And... You know, Indians were proud of their their vaccine role. And Serum CEO was a symbol of that. And now they've watched him flee the country on a private jet as they mm-hmm. get their appointments canceled. So there is a lot of anger here. Yeah. Yeah. OK, let's let's just like take a step back for a second, because you know, earlier this year, India's case numbers had plummeted to some of their lowest numbers. So, you know, like what happened? How did we get to this crisis point now? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the biggest warning that India has for the world. India thought the virus was gone here, and it wasn't. Mm -hmm. In January and February, people resumed life, like held those weddings that they put off from last year, um, made up for lost time. And Prime Minister Narendra Modi held these massive political rallies. There was this big Hindu pilgrimage with millions of people bathing in the Ganges River together. But the virus was not gone. Um, And by the way, this was always the worst fear here. Like, it's pretty hard to socially distance in India. People live in multi-generational families all together. Like, it's honestly what I love about India, this closeness, this mass of humanity. But it has been fertile ground for the coronavirus, and we're seeing that right now. Yeah. And I mean, I know that there's also a variant circulating there. It seems to be more contagious. It's possible that could be partially responsible for this outbreak. But like, that's not totally clear, right? Yeah, they have discovered a new variant um, first identified in India. They're calling it the B1617 variant. There are lots of questions about whether it's possibly more infectious, maybe possibly able to evade vaccines. But there are also plenty of other variants here. There's the one first discovered in the UK, which is prevalent in some parts of India. What's hard for me, like as someone sitting here wondering, like, is the virus in my city different from the virus in your city? What's hard is the waiting. Mm. Scientists are sequencing these things like crazy, and we just have to wait and see what they find. Mm -hmm. I mean, meanwhile, other countries are taking precautions. The U.S., the U.K., many other countries have restricted travel from India until we can find out more. Yeah. So, Lauren, like we mentioned, you live in Mumbai. I mean, what has it been for you these past couple of weeks? What's it been like? It feels like a siege. I mean, I haven't left my home for 37 days. The local lockdown here is so strict, you're not allowed to go for a walk or a jog. But Mm. we are the lucky ones. I mean, there is a hero at my local grocery store who delivers food to me and my neighbors. I have friends who are sick, who haven't been able to find medical care. And that's like just a whole level of anxiety on top of the actual illness. And, you know, I text with my friends who are sick in bed, unable to get up. And I just fear not getting that double check, the blue check, like confirming that Mm. they're still on the other end of the line. Um, Social media has become just this litany of life or death pleas. Doctors crying on Facebook Live because they can't help people. Families calling for mercy killing because the government hasn't helped them. I mean, and a lot of these at least maybe are preventable deaths. I mean, this is India right now. It's difficult to be here. It's difficult to watch. Um, Everyone, everyone I know has lost someone. Oh, Lauren, I'm so sorry. Okay. Um, All right. So I'm thinking about this, you know, how we've seen this uh, in in one country after another to varying degrees, right? I mean, including in the States. 
And there's similar factors and patterns leading to out-of-control outbreaks. And it's something, I don't know, they feel like we have to really sit with and think about. Like, that even here in the States, if we are tempted to feel like this is almost over, like, we are very still much in a state of global emergency. And we still need to act like that as an international community. Totally. I mean... Until we are better at distributing supplies, until we are better at getting vaccines to countries that need them, until we are better at getting support for healthcare workers, like we're going to keep seeing outbreaks like this. And I'm sitting here in India watching scenes of real optimism in the United States, stuff opening up, spring blooming, people, you know, think that the pandemic is behind them. And I, I truly hope it is. But I also fear that what I am seeing here in my neighborhood could easily jump anywhere else. And unless we learn these lessons of India and and all prepare. All right, Lauren Freyer, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to come on the show and your reporting on this. Thank you so much for having me. Today's episode was produced by Britt Hansen, edited by Viet Le, and fact-checked by Rasha Reedy. I'm Maddie Safaya. Thanks for listening to Shortwave the daily science podcast from NPR.